Wonderful to see all of you here in person and, wa- and you watching at home. Welcome uh, watching. And those of you that are, are new to our community, we want to especially welcome you. And as Pastor David was concluding that prayer, he also included praying for the offering. Uh, this is a way family business. If you're new to our church, we don't have any expectation of you, but for our covenant partners supporting our our general fund, mission, uh, the mission of the church, the ministries that happen here on campus, our, our deacon uh, work uh, that is unbelievably powerfully being used by God uh, throughout our community, and our global mission supporters, as you heard uh, Lori's testimony, uh, all rely on your uh, faithful investment in stewardship. So thank you for that. I also want to say that uh, an apology to you watching at home if the <laughs> you were trying to uh, live stream last week. Some of you came this week because you thought, well, it was, uh, we apologize that the live stream did not work last week. And uh, our team is taking every effort to make sure that it, uh, that won't happen again, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but I would say as uh, mass restrictions are lifting and next week we are saying the elders have voted that uh, for all ages, masks will now be optional. We know for our state, it's by March 21st. Uh, it's the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday is, is coming this Wednesday, and the season of preparation towards Easter. So would I invite all of you watching at home, please come. Come back to church in person. The live stream uh, has been invaluable during this two years of COVID. Uh, it was out of necessity. We weren't able to be together in worship. And we'll continue to have a hybrid model where we'll have the services live streamed, and things produced weekly, gospel material being produced and distributed widely uh, across the, the nation. And indeed, we have viewers around the world. But it was never meant to be a replacement for in-person worship. If you're not well, if you're traveling, if you're hurting, if just convenience sake, you have to be at home, of course. But would you please make it again uh, your regular habit, uh, your weekly invitation uh, an appointment to be here in worship because Pastor Frank, I know Psalm 122, uh, and D- Rob said it as well. It does not say, I was glad when they said, let's go to the couch to watch TV. It was, <laughs> I was glad when we said, come, let's come to the house of the Lord. All right, we needed a little levity. Let's open the word and let's turn to Romans chapter four. And I'll be reading, uh, uh, in chapter four, we've, we're now, uh, in the midst of this series, I think this is our sixth sermon uh, in the series, so uh, play a little catch-up, track with me. It's going to be a little complicated, but we will uh, figure it out together in your text and also on the screen. Listen now to God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man and the woman against whom the Lord will not count their sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. 
How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them all. To make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O Lord God, may you be pleased with the words of my lips and be magnified in this hour. Amen. The, the letter or the epistle of Romans, not commonly just called Romans, was written by the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. He was born uh, the son of a Jewish Roman citizen in a place called Tarsus. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's just the, the remains of the site there. It's about a half an hour drive to the Mediterranean Sea. As a young man, Saul was a brilliant student. and became the brightest of young rabbis belonging to a religious party known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were passionately devoted to the traditions of Israel, to the, uh, to the study of Jewish theological thought, and theology and the study of, of governance meshed together very much, and to the commitment to the law of Moses, the Torah, the great study of, of the law. Now, Saul saw Jesus as a, a blasphemous a recluse, false prophet, a criminal. His followers as, as misfit, misguided rebels, a threat to national security. And he took it as his own nationalistic pride that he was assigned to hunt them down, these radicals, until he himself experienced a radical encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus around 33 A.D., the year of our Lord. Jesus commissioned him uh, as an apostle, that is a, a messenger, a sent one, literally a sent one, a messenger of the gospel sent specifically to non-Jewish people throughout the, the world of the empire. So he had incredible credentials as a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, and all the great study and wherewithal of what it meant to be Jewish, but he also held that coveted, very expensive to pay out of pocket for, if you can even get your ticket, Roman citizenship. And Romans, this letter to the Church of Rome, is the longest and I believe the most significant of all of Paul's writings because in it he explains most thoroughly what it means to be saved by Jesus, how salvation works, how it works through the gospel of Jesus, and how it changes everything. Now, last time we finished chapter 3, if you're with us, there, Paul was describing how God justifies, that is to say, he declares righteous, he makes right, he brings people into right standing, into right relationship, all who do declare faith or allegiance in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we have a new status before God, as God's redeemed, forgiven, adopted, accepted, included in God's new covenant family. 
all by faith and not by works, all by believing and trusting on Jesus, not on the things that we could possibly do. Now, sometimes when I try to explain something to somebody, uh, they say, I, Pastor Peter, I don't understand what you're saying. So you explain it again. And they say, I still don't get what you're saying. Well, let me try another way. Uh, I'm still not understanding what you're saying. And you wonder, is it my words that aren't making sense to you? Should I speak in a different language? Or is it that you don't want to hear what I'm saying? Then that could be a sense here in chapter four, Paul is saying he's getting at, he's driving at faith being justified is through this beautiful work of God's grace and it is a gift. And I believe his readers need to hear it again because they don't quite understand what he's saying. For to be redeemed, forgiven, accepted, adopted into God's covenant people means no more guilt, no more shame, no more insecurity, and means also, he says in here, no more boasting, comparing yourselves to one another. As we covered the past few weeks, but this is your first time, the Church of Rome was made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They all had a score to settle. They all had ways of comparing who was closer to God, who was more right before God. And he says, None of those qualities matter. What matters is the gift of God's grace, the very things that we've been singing about all morning. And so this leads to chapter four. And in chapter four, Paul, the Pharisee, which in a way is being like an attorney, like any good attorney, Paul calls two witnesses to the stand, his star witnesses, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. He makes his case by calling these two star witnesses. The first is Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And the second is King David, the greatest king of Israel. Now, David's going to get a lot less airtime. He's squeezed in. Look at verses 68. David's just kind of wedged in there. Abraham really is the star witness. He's going to be on the stand throughout this chapter. He's crucial to Paul's argument that he's driving at throughout this whole chapter that we're going to study this week and in the week to come. Keep in mind, again, Paul is writing to a a multi-ethnic church that's divided over theology, race, politics, and how this new faith in the Messiah actually works. Who better to make the case, especially to that Jewish audience that has his attention, than Abraham? So let's look at verses 1 to 4. Abraham... He says here, he says, he talks about the credit that was due him. He says, Abraham couldn't take credit for what uh, he had done. If he could, then he would, he would earn his keep. Just like if you go to, to work and your boss just says after a hard day's work, well, thanks so much for working. I got to get paid. I just worked, right? He says, now, if, if Abraham worked for his faith, he was due a wage. But instead, look at verse 3 and 9. He quotes here from the book of Genesis 15, verse 6. I've mentioned to you, if you have the little booklet version, our journal version of Romans, as you take notes, as you underline, circle, key words or phrases, I've asked you to make a symbol, maybe an asterisk, whenever there's an Old Testament reference. And there are many throughout uh, the study in Romans. And I'll try to give you the reference. So here, look at verse 3 and 9. Make that little mark. And in your notes, mark Genesis 15, verse 6. And go back and read that on your own. And in it, it says that, that Abraham believed, he trusted, he had faith in God's promises. Even though he and his wife were too old to have children, 
And even though they tried their whole married life, they were not able to have kids. That God had promised to Abraham. He called him out of his tent. He said, look at the stars, Abraham. You will have your own heir. Your servant will not be your heir. You will have your own son. And you will be the father of a great nation that will be blessed. And Abraham, it says, believed in God. And it says in Genesis uh, 15, 6, twice, it says it was counted or credited to him. Logizomai. It means it was reckoned or computed or to count over. And, and this word is a very important word, this word counted or, or reckoned. It shows up 10 times in the chapter. So look for it in the chapter. Brownie points if you get all 10 uh, references to being credited or counted. To credit something is to give or confer a new status. An example is some houses can be leased to buy or or rent to own. I won't have a show of hands, but some of you, you get it. I see some heads maybe nodding. Lease to buy or rent to own. So you make your monthly payment as rent with the option to buy before the lease is, is expired. And the same thing for cars, right? The, those past rent payments are then counted. They are credited. They are re- reckoned as mortgage payments. A new status is granted to those payments if you pay in full, right? So faith counted to him as righteousness means God treated Abraham as though he had been living a righteous life, as though all of his steps out of his homeland, being following the Lord as Abram and Sarai followed in the path that God had laid before them, one foot in front of another, they were all counted to him as righteousness. They were counted to him as being the right way, the right standing, the way to live in honor of God. Abraham, we know, if you study his story, was not in and of himself a righteous man. The father of, our, of the faith, the father of the Jewish people, Father Abraham had what? Seven sons. But we don't teach the kids in Sunday school, Father Abraham was also a real mess up. He made some terrible, terrible choices. He and his wife alike. What do we see here in the story of Abram and Sarah is big moral failures. They are bankrupt when it comes to righteousness. There is nothing in the account. It is only by the sovereign grace of God counted onto his account that Abram, then named Abraham, was righteous. This is a very important piece to understand. It would have been very challenging for those Jewish Christians to understand, and for the Gentile Christians who didn't grow up in synagogue, for those of you who didn't grow up in church, you're misunderstanding, catch this. The father of the faith, the most important first figure, is not righteous. No. He messed up time and time again. You parents, you read your kids' uh, Bible story books, and then eventually at what age do you switch over to like an actual Bible? What, what, how old are they about that, Sarah, when you switch over from the kid's version of the story to like, let's actually see what the Bible says. Like seven, eight years old. And then the kids are like, wait, what? They did what? Wait a second, huh? Who? What? Even a little child knows, mom and dad, that's, that's bad. 
It is. And yet God, by his grace, his sovereign mercy, his hessed love, counted to Abraham what he could never, ever earn. Witness number one. Witness number two, David, King David, star witness number two. Oh, he's a winner. His successes are well known. Victory in single combat, a giant, a bear, a lion, oh my. A great military leader, political success. He, he united all the tribes. They all fell in line behind him. And we know that David had this special relationship with God, right? When he was a, a shepherd boy, he was, he was the youngest. His brothers were all fighting. And he's out in the fields with the sheep and thinking great thoughts about God. Yet David, the king, is a tragic figure. Moral failure in midlife. Marital failure. First degree crime kind of, don't say what it was, Pastor Pete, because there's still kids in the room kind of failure. Parenting failure. His kids fought one another for the crown. Political failure. A king who gave Israel its survival and its identity this incredible success record. And yet, if you stop reading the kid's version of the story and actually read what the Bible says, failure after immoral, unrighteous failure. Psalms, read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 defines what righteousness is. To believe, to dwell on, to delight in the law of God. How many times did David fail? And yet, here we have the Apostle Paul quoting David, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. There's another asterisk to put down. Look at verse 7 and 8. For David, with all of his faults and foibles, he was a man after God's own heart, and he wrote these words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's the definition of righteousness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. A man after God's own heart. Who knows this feeder made of clay? Who knows all the ways that he's messed up and let people down? He says the blessing is knowing that the lawless one, the one who sins, will be blessed by God's grace alone. Central to the Protestant Reformation, very key to uh, the, the movement in the church, uh, back to scripture, ad fontes. Let's get back to the word. Let's shed away tradition. Let's shed away these teachings that seem to be adding all sorts of things to salvation. Martin Luther, uh, the German monk, came to the concept, Simo Ustis Picartor. That's my most line I've spoken in a year. It means, it's a phrase that means at the same time, righteous and sinful. Simultaneously, he says, we are both, we, we are both uh, righteous before God. We are just, we are justified. Yet we are also, just like Abraham, just like David, just like all the other great heroes of the faith, not one of us, save Jesus alone, is perfect. We are saint and sinner at the same time. This is the very heart of our justification of how we get right with God. God sees us in a new relationship with himself because of what his son did for us. So from one perspective, 
we are one way. In another sense, we're seen at another by faith in Jesus. His record is covering us. His righteousness, it's called imputed to us. He covers our debt. We never made a payment on time. We never made a payment. Anything we tried to pay was just worthless. We're digging more and more debt. Paul says this close to the end of his life. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Paul's driving at again and again and again. Why? Because it's human nature to want to be judged by our record. It's human nature to size ourselves up to the people around us. I'm better than her. I'm better than him. I'm worse off than them. They have a perfect marriage. He's got a better job. We just compare all the time. So the question he has here uh, before the readers of, of, of this letter is, what will we be judged according to? By the works of Torah or by our faithfulness to God? And that's why this concept of circumcision, which will be a delicate one. Parents, you want to talk about that one with your kids after church? But it's an important one because this was, uh, well, uh, no pun intended, this is what cut the, cover- the community in half. Whether you're, either you had been circumcised or you hadn't, this is what would define, are you in or are you out? And that's why Paul says here, Abraham believed God first and it was credited to him. And then this was a sign and seal of that righteousness. Moses leads the children out of Egypt, across uh, the, the Great Sea, the Red Sea. He saves them, they're saved, and then they receive the law. See, we want to put it, the cart before the horse again and again. And we miss, we miss that Paul's saying, Jesus Christ's righteousness as a son is now our very own because we are united to him because of what he did for us on the cross. And now the father looks on you and looks on me the same way he looks at his son in whom he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He looks at you and he says, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But Lord, what have I done? What could I possibly do to earn this? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but the perfect obedience of Christ. And just as it's impossible for the father to stop loving his son, so it is impossible for God to stop loving you. And yet you struggle. Does God love me? Why? Going through some hard times. I don't think God's alive in my life. Where is God showing up? Does he love me? And again and again and again, the scripture says, yes, indeed he does. None of this would be possible but for the cross. We get the robe of righteousness because Jesus was stripped naked. We get the royal signet ring on our hand because nails were driven through his. A crown is placed on our head of of glory because knotted thorn-filled branches were twisted and thrust onto his. And we get to Revelation and we John has the vision. And what are they doing? They're taking the crowns and they're casting them down of the foot. What does this all mean? 
I kind of got worked up. What does this mean? You tracking with me? Some of us are fading. What does it mean for me here and now? What difference does it make in this maddening, frenetic, competitive world of ours? Saving faith. Trusting faith. Biblical faith makes all the difference in the world. Understanding and hearing again the gospel and preaching that same gospel to the face of the mirror and hearing again, reminding of who we are and whose we are, what he has done, not what we can do again and again, sets us free. Frees us from shame and guilt. Frees us from insecurity and doubt. Frees us from comparison and, and, and boasting. Being easily offended and, and worried that somehow we might get found out. Oh, we might get found out that we're not all that people think that we are. Our family isn't as perfect as people think that it is. Let's get real. It's not. I'm not. You can have strong faith that God exists and, and that, that you can believe in God's character. You can believe in God's holy word and, and study scripture. You can even go and study it your whole lifetime. You can have great reverence for God. Yet all the while you can be seeking to be your own savior and justifier by trusting in your own religious performance in your own moral character, or in your job, or in your parenting, or you just fill in the blank of the ways that you actually are measuring where you are before the Lord. Paul's audience needed to really wrestle with this concept of, of circumcision, not just being this outward sign, but, but an inward reality. So friend, let me challenge you this morning. Remove your hope in the things that you do. Remove your hope in the things that people say that you are. Place all of your trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone. Dr. James Kennedy, the founding pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in, in uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, founded the church in the late 60s, and then he wrote a little book uh, he had been doing as a Bible study training program called Evangelism Explosion. Anyone familiar with that, that book in the room? A couple people. Published the year I was born. By God's great grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, Dr. Kennedy's uh, church grew from 12 people to 2,000 people in just 12 years. And the bedrock of that ministry was deploying uh, people just like all of you here and you watching at home, deploying you to go out to your neighborhoods and knock on doors with the same question, the same Question at every door. I'm seeing some heads nod. You know what the question is. Here's the question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Let's do that right now. Pens and paper ready. This is a time test. I'll give you a few options. This is a, the top three random sample of, of church folks. These are the top three answers, the large number one, two, or three, A, B, or C. So again, the question, if you're die tonight, standing before God, he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? 
Well, how would you answer? A, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. B, because I believe in God and I try to do his will. C, because I believe in God with all of my heart. All right, pens down. It's not a trick question, but I got a little tricky with the answers. Because A, B, and C reveal common misconceptions about what it means to be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Answer A. How, how, why should God allow you uh, into his heaven? An- answer A, uh, because I tried to be a good Christian. I tried my best to be a good Christian, actually, it says. Answer A is salvation by works. You're trying to bring the list of things that you've done. Answer B, because I believe in God and, and try to do his will. That's salvation by faith plus works. Answer C, because I believe in God with all of my heart. Don't, don't raise your hand. I'm asking rhetorically. You write down C. That's salvation by faith as a work. In this last case, this person is trusting is in his or her own trust. But what happens to your faith, your identity, your security, your confidence when your faith is in your own faith? All three, A, B, and C, miss the glory and the beauty of the gospel. These are mistaken understandings that lead Christians to insecurity, anxiety, lack of assurance, a certain amount of spiritual pride, often judgmentalism, touchiness. Even the last one, I, I believe with all my heart what happens when your heart fails. Well, I don't sing those songs. I don't read those passages. If I got found out that I failed, that I struggled, that I had doubts, what would become of me? What would my reputation in church? And show my face again. Think about what you are trusting in. Now, for an irreligious person, a person who says, oh, this is all baloney, I'm out of here. For an irreligious person, they can choose to ignore the reality that there is a one true living righteous God that will judge them for all eternity. Ah, forget it. There's another life of one that is very religious. The one that understands, yes, God only accepts a religious life, and I must live the most religious life I possibly can. And you miss it. Be the one in the middle that just trusts. On that day, we can imagine the thief on the cross. and said, why should we let you into heaven? What did the thief say? No record. No works. No trust. I just heard the invitation from the man in the middle. And I'm here. Friends, here is the good news. In Christ, you are forgiven. And in Christ, you are a saint, even though you and I still sin and we know it. 
And in Christ, you are sealed by the Spirit for all eternity, even when you feel very, very insecure. Faith doesn't equal obedience, but obeying God flows out of faith. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But though I sin, it can't condemn me. Though the enemy can't defeat me, though the grave can't hold me because the lies of the enemy have all been answered by Christ. Knowing this is the only way to live a liberated life. Rob and team, you guys are hiding out there. Where are you? Come on out. God's righteous character has moved him to rescue you. A plan to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection and to invite you into his multi-ethnic, transnational community of covenant love. Covenant love, not a contract. Contracts can be broken. That's why when I sit down with a couple that's getting married, I say, you are about to enter into a covenant, not a contract. A contract, two parties sign that contract, uh, and there are uh, expectations. And the expectation also is that you're going to hold to these, these vows. And if you don't, if you break the contract, there's going to be consequences. A covenant, entering into a covenant of two sinful people that are made saints by the Lord Jesus, you say, I know I'm going to break these vows. I know that I can't do this without the grace of God. In covenant, we come to him. And so it is that he created this multi-ethnic family of Abraham. And that's why you're all here. And that's why you're watching from home. Because God is surely trustworthy to his word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Get ready to sing one last song. Lord God, we thank you for the mission of our church to help all people know you more deeply, love others more completely, and live life more fully. Lord, I pray that in this final moments before we are dismissed for the the week ahead, as we approach Ash Wednesday and and celebrate and, and commemorate a holy season of Lent, Lord God, would you do a deep work in us? We want to commune with you, Lord. Jesus, we want your prayers in the upper room to be true. When you said, Father, may they know Uh, you, may they have a relationship with you the way that I have a relationship with you. I pray that anyone here in this room or watching at home that feels insecure and feels judged, feels uncertain, Lord, of their place before you, I pray, Lord God, that you would confirm by your Holy Spirit and by the text of your word to us the freedom that is in Christ for the work that he has completed and finished on our behalf. Amen.